When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before we begin, I have an announcement to make. This will be the concluding episode of Writ Large. This series has been a complete joy to create, and I'm grateful to you for joining me in this extended love letter to books. I also want to thank my producers, Galen Beebe and Jack Pombriant, who brought brilliance and creativity to every episode. I wanted to go out with a bang, and so for this final episode, I invited a former professor and beloved mentor, Peter Gordon to discuss one of the most important and challenging books of the 20th century, Martin Heidegger's Being in Time. I've been engaged with Heidegger's work for many, many years, going back to my earliest years of graduate study. And in fact, he's one of those philosophers who really awakened me to the possibilities of philosophy as a discipline. My name's Peter Gordon. I teach at Harvard University, and I teach European philosophy and social theory in the modern period. Martin Heidegger did not like small thoughts. He was fascinated by the most expansive questions humans can ask themselves. Questions like, why do things exist as they do? What does it mean to be in the world? Heidegger came to believe that many of the modern answers to these questions were based on old, unexamined assumptions. Instead of accepting those assumptions, Heidegger wanted to peel back the layers of history and go back to the very beginnings of philosophy to see what he could discover. The result is his most well-known work, Being and Time, published in 1927. Being and Time is a book that asks a seemingly very simple question. What does it mean to be. And this wasn't just late-night, weed-fueled, dorm-room speculation. Heidegger was deeply concerned with figuring out how to live a good life and how to navigate the anxieties that come with existence. What's always been inspiring to me in Heidegger is that he's someone who transcends the merely academic questions that preoccupy professional philosophers in the discipline as it's been constituted today. He's someone who took very seriously the old Aristotelian uh, idea that philosophy begins in wonder. And he remained faithful to that basic experience of wonder his entire life. When one's reading Heidegger, one has the sense that one's reading someone who is in dialogue with the ancients and the moderns. One really has the, the sense of participating in an ongoing and very contested philosophical conversation that stretches back through the millennia. This is Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. For this final episode, I sat down with Professor Peter Gordon to discuss Martin Heidegger's Being and Time. Would you be able to take us through the broad sketches of his life? So Heidegger was born toward the end of the 19th century in 1889. And he was born in a fairly small town in the Schwarzwald, in, in, in the Black Forest, in southwestern Germany, Meskirch. Um, now, he was born into a Catholic family of fairly modest means and was raised as a Catholic. The Catholic milieu into which he was born was culturally and religiously a very conservative one that resisted some of the innovations that were being introduced into Catholicism that were evident in other communities. And Heidegger belonged to a community that was resisting some of those changes. Young Heidegger studied theology in school. But his real love turned out to be philosophy. He studied at the University of Freiburg, one of the truly great universities uh, in the Southwest, with the neo-Kantian philosopher Heinrich Rickert. He wrote a dissertation on Duns Scotus, the medieval scholastic philosopher. 
and and then he turned toward the school of philosophy that was very powerful at the time and held a lot of interest for students of his generation, which was phenomenology. This is basically the study of lived experience. Phenomenology focuses on the experience of being in the world, the subjective experience of reality. Heidegger became fascinated with phenomenology and studied with the founder of this philosophy, Edmund Husserl. Heidegger quickly proved himself to be one of the most powerful uh, students in Husserl's circle and became Husserl's assistant in teaching. And at that point, then, his Catholic faith seems to have uh, attenuated. Whether it collapsed entirely is uh, a matter of some controversy, and people will disagree about that. Um, but it's a sign of its attenuating somewhat that he married Elfrida Petri, who was herself of a Lutheran background. Um, and by the mid-20s and late-20s, he was giving talks where he made it pretty clear that he was interested in theology as a kind of archive of philosophical concepts, but perhaps not uh, as uh, something that he considered a living faith for himself. Meanwhile, Heidegger's career in philosophy continued to advance. He was appointed an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of Marburg, another great university town at the time. Um, and it was really at Marburg, starting in 1922, that his own independent reputation uh, began to develop. Uh, his one of his students at the time was Hannah Arendt, um, who who later in life recalled that moment about how the reputation of Heidegger spread throughout Germany like the rumor of a hidden king. She was very uh, inspired by Heidegger, at least in those early years. Um, but there was something that students found to be very dramatic, very gripping, very engaging about his philosophical style. He took up Husserl's method of phenomenology or the description of what appears in our experience, but he did so with an inimitable style, a kind of drama, a kind of passion that sustained that wonder. And it was during those years, in between 1922, uh, 23, 24, um, that he uh, delivered some of the seminars that worked out the insights that would later come to fruition uh, with the publication of Sein und Zeit, or Being and Time. And Being and Time came out first in 1927, and it came out in a series run by his own Doktorvater, Edmund Husserl, his, his professor. Um, and it was kind of rushed into print. This is an interesting thing about Being and Time that um, sometimes isn't properly understood. Being and Time is actually an unfinished work. <laughs> It's the torso of a book, uh, but it lacks its com completion, the, the, the final part. And the final part was really supposed to be the, in a way, the, the ultimate and most dramatic part. Now, why it was rushed into print had to do with the, the banal fact that Heidegger simply needed to get this thing published in order to get a job. Uh, and it worked. In 1928, the year after Being in Time was published, Edmund Husserl retired as professor of philosophy at Freiburg, and Heidegger was elected to take his position. He taught there through the uh, end of the 20s and on into the early 1930s, and then the great political cataclysm uh, came about, which is um, that uh, the Nazis seized power. And Heidegger seems to have been very attracted to the Nazi message of a renewal of Germany, of, of German national identity, of German military, uh, 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 military power uh, in Central Europe. Uh, he also seems to have been quite moved by the, uh, the Nazi program for uh, a cultural and spiritual renewal of the uh, of the German people of the German nation, um, and along with that went um, at least some 
uh, signs of his own anti-Semitism, which seems to have been something that was evident in his work well before 1933. There, there, there's certain bits and pieces in letters that make it clear that that he shared with many people who belong to his kind of traditionalist uh, milieu certain associations of Jews with modernity, with rootlessness, with cosmopolitanism, and so forth. And that would play at least some role in what he thought was uh, promising in the Nazi movement. Anyways, he was attracted to the Nazi movement before 1933, but with the Nazi seizure of power uh, in 1933, the Nazis began the process of the coordination of, of society, its political, and its educational institutions. And it was during that phase of coordination when the Nazi party brought into the universities uh, uh, leaders uh, administrators who belonged to the Nazi party, that Heidegger himself joined the Nazi party and was appointed uh, to the position, a very powerful position of rector at Freiburg. Uh, and that he was appointed in around April 1933 and remained rector for about a year and uh, stepped down uh, in April 1934, but in continued teaching uh, continued to wear his uh, Nazi party pin. Um, there are some signs that he began to feel some discomfort with certain aspects of the Nazi program. He didn't like biological racism that didn't fit his understanding of, of philosophy or the way that national identity works. In any case, um, he continued teaching as well um, on through the 30s and on through uh, the war. Um, but with uh, Germany's defeat, uh, he, he was seen as a suspect figure by the occupying forces, and he was actually placed for some time under a teaching prohibition and uh, was barred from use of the uh, library in Freiburg. Sometime after that, however, in the, the, the mid-1940s, right, right after German defeat, um, he began to associate more with uh, French philosophers um, who found in him a new, new philosophical inspiration, and he was drawn into the circuit of conversations surrounding French existentialism. He was permitted to resume his uh, professorship at Freiburg in 1951, he wrote uh, a great deal more on poetry and art um, and continued on teaching, inspiring new students until his official retirement, I, I think around 1967. And at that point, he retreated more and more to a cabin, which Elfrida Petri and him had, had built back in the early 1920s, a, a cabin retreat on, the, on a mountainside in Todnauberg. Uh, where he would often receive uh, uh, guests who were who would who would come up to this mountainside hut and seek there the pearls of wisdom from this great now aging philosopher. He died in 1976, and he had a churchyard burial in his original hometown of Meskirch. Now, all of that is very complicated, and I have to say that there are many people who would follow Heidegger's own advice by saying that the personal details of a philosopher as an individual do not matter at all. Heidegger was very famous for announcing once in a summer lecture course on Aristotle in 1924, he said, regarding the personality of a philosopher, our only interest is that he was born at a certain time that he worked and that he died. We can ask ourselves whether that's really sufficient for understanding Heidegger, but it does capture, I think, the feeling that many people have when they're reading Heidegger, that they're in touch with insights that transcend facts of personal biography and also transcend the political scandal of his own Nazism. If we're really concerned with Heidegger's insights or with his thinking and not Heidegger, the empirical individual, 
then it's tempting to think that uh, those insights can survive quite apart from who Heidegger was or what his political choices might have been. In any case, that's his life. Fabulous. Thank you. Thank you. Perfect. So being in time, why do you think he called it being in time? My understanding of the project of this text is to recover the lost understanding or even the focus on being from the ancients. Yes, absolutely. So the title, the title of the book is Sein und Zeit, Being and Time. And one can hardly imagine a more abstract title, right? And it is a text that promises to engage some of the deepest questions that have preoccupied philosophy since ancient times. So it's not surprising that when you open up the text on the frontispiece, the very opening page, uh, there is a quote from Plato's Sophist, uh, from one of the Platonic dialogues. I believe it's one of Socrates' interlocutors. I don't think it's Socrates himself, who interrupts and says, just a moment, manifestly, you have long been aware of what you mean when you use the expression being. We, however, who used to think we understood it, have now become perplexed. So the interlocutor stops the dialogue and says, we've been talking about being all this time, We've been acting as if we understand what we mean by that, but we're confused, right? And Heidegger uses that as his own prompt to say, that's right. Not just the interlocutors in the Platonic dialogue, the sophist, and not just Plato in particular, but the entire philosophical tradition has been operating on the assumption that it knows what is meant when we say that something is or what it is to be. But in fact, we don't know. And yet Heidegger says, we've been operating on certain assumptions and those assumptions have obscured for us the original meaning of being. And so we need to burrow deep into the philosophical tradition to figure out what it is that we've meant by being. And we need to maybe clear away all of the obstructions to our own understanding that we've inherited from the philosophical tradition. Maybe the philosophical tradition has misled us. Maybe we really haven't understood what being is. And, and the promise of the book then is to clear away all of the metaphysical prejudices that we've inherited over millennia ever since Plato, perhaps possibly even before, in order to get back to the Zin designs, the uh, meaning of being, the understanding of being, which somehow underwrites all of philosophical inquiry and Heidegger will say, actually makes possible our experience. Before Heidegger could clear away these metaphysical prejudices, he first had to see where they came from. To get an understanding of the ideas that shaped the modern concept of being, Heidegger looked to Plato. If you've read Plato's Republic, or read, say, the Symposium, you'll know that Plato subscribes to something called the divided line. He thinks that human beings live in a realm of appearance, uh, but there is a higher realm, a realm of forms. And that realm is in a way truer. It is a realm that is uh, truer than the, uh, than the merely apparent realm that we inhabit. And so if you read Plato's Republic, there's the, the famous uh, allegory of the cave where Socrates uh, asks his interlocutors to entertain a scenario where people find themselves in a cave and they are shackled in place and there's a fire behind them and the fire is projecting figures, shadow figures on the wall in front of them. And they think that that's reality. They think that's what there is. 
And then so Socrates says, well, what if they were unshackled and they were to turn around and see the fire behind them? Well, they might realize that what they thought was, in fact, the way the world is, was an illusion or merely an apparent, apparent world. And then if you drag them out of the cave, past the fire, up into the daylight, they would look up at the sky blinking and they would see the actual light, the source of all things. And they would realize that they had been living in a realm of illusion and that the true being of the world uh, owes its being to that light. So Heidegger takes from this the thought that the philosophical tradition first developed by making the very condition for the world's appearance something that lies beyond the apparent world itself. The forms, the pure forms, are what lend the world its intelligibility, its meaningfulness. It's only in virtue of the form of a tree, for example, that I can grasp what that particular branched thing is in front of me. Every object in the world as it appears owes its intelligibility, its meaningfulness, its very being to that higher form that lies behind it and uh, beyond the world, that worldly things participate in their form and that it's in virtue of their form that they appear to me. But Heidegger says, well, that's interesting. It looks as if the, the, the condition by which things are what they are lies beyond them and, in fact, beyond the world. Another thinker whose ideas shaped the modern concept of being was French philosopher René Descartes. So when we think about Descartes and his meditations or the discourse on method, we have there a very different picture where the world is an array of, ex of external and extended objects, and we ourselves are uh, mental objects. And Descartes presents us with an image of the world where it is split in two between these two fundamental types of things, thinking substance and extended substance. And Descartes thinks that what, we're, what we can be truly certain of is our own thinking. Then the question becomes, well, how does the mind relate to the external world at all? Given the fact of optical illusion, given the possibility that we're being deceived somehow by our senses, it becomes difficult to establish a bridge between our thoughts and the external world. But establishing that bridge is crucial because it's only in virtue of that bridge that, the, that we have any assurance that the external world is there at all and that we have knowledge of it. So for Heidegger, what this means is that uh, Descartes has made, if you like, the very intelligibility of the world depend entirely upon the thinking mind, the, the thinking self. The subject becomes the ground for what appears as the object. And human reason becomes the foundation of what there is. But Descartes can only do that by splitting apart the world once again into the thinking subject and the external world and then throwing across a bridge uh, uh, to reestablish the connection between one and the other. Now, uh, one of Heidegger's deepest insights is that there's something very intriguing about the philosophical tradition running from Plato down to Descartes because both of them, if you like, place the very foundation of the world somehow outside the world. For Plato, it lies in the forms. For Descartes, it lies in uh, the human mind. But both of them, as we saw, uh, can argue this point through by insisting on a division 
In Plato's work, it's the division between the world as appearance in the cave and the higher uh, true being of the forms. In Descartes, it's the division between uh, the objects out there in the world and the thinking mind, which is over here uh, inside consciousness. Now, Heidegger's project, if you like, is to dismantle that basic prejudice, that basic prejudice which places the very ground of being outside the world. Neither forms nor reason. That's right. That's right. He wants, therefore, to bracket out the entire philosophical tradition, which he says is a tradition of prejudice, a tradition of uh, uh, that has possibly obscured our uh, proper access to the question of being, to raising anew the old question from the sophist, what is the meaning of being? What is the proper understanding of being that underwrites our experience? So he thinks we could bracket out all of those philosophical prejudices, and we should begin to just describe the world as it shows up for us in our everyday experience. And what he owes to his teacher, Edmund Husserl, is that emphasis on unprejudiced description. Uh, Husserl said phenomenology uh, wants to just describe the phenomena. And that's what Heidegger believed he was doing in Being in Time, that he would just describe the phenomena Describe what shows up to us in the course of our everyday experience. And then he thought we can take our cue to a proper understanding of being if we begin from that faithful, unprejudiced description. Okay, so um, the source of being, the ground of being, the kind of real stuff for Plato is these sort of mystical forms, these essences. And Descartes says, well, we can't we can't even really directly encounter the real ground of being uh, because we might be deceived at any point. The only being we really have any true access to is is the thinking self, which we can't doubt. And Heidegger says, well, that's thousands of years of prejudice against the world itself. Uh, what if we don't see ourselves as distinct from the ground of being? What if there's more unity between subject and object than we have considered so far? Yeah, that's right. He wants to begin by not uh, taking on board all of the metaphysical claims that have introduced these strange and implausible distinctions between the apparent world and the higher realm of the forms or between um, uh, the the indubitable world of human reasoning of the of, of what we what are the mere contents of our mind and then the somewhat dubious uh, uh, realm uh, beyond us uh, the the extended substance out there. And he says, well, the, all of these are uh, strange metaphysical distinctions that have perhaps distorted our understanding of just what there is. So let's begin with a faithful ev description of our everyday experience and then build up our new metaphysics, our new understanding of the basic structure of reality, uh, on the basis of that faithful description. Now, to begin this inquiry, he says, we got to start somewhere. So the place we should start is probably with ourselves because we're the ones asking the question, and we already have some understanding of being, even apart from all the prejudices of the philosophical tradition, we probably exemplify 
an, an understanding of being just in the way we go about our lives, in the way we ask philosophical questions, but even more so perhaps just in the way we walk or the way we uh, undertake everyday activities. Um, when we're not engaged in formal philosophy, we must already have some understanding of being because it's only in virtue of an understanding of being that things make any sense to us. Things have meaning. Things are. So he wants to begin with us, with the human manner of being. And, and now he starts introducing a bunch of rather strange philosophical terminology. And he apologized uh, at one point to his students saying, I can't help but use this very odd terminology because the inherited philosophical tradition has distorted our everyday understanding of things. And to properly grasp the phenomena, to properly grasp human experience in the most concrete fashion, I'm going to have to uh, develop all of these peculiar terms. Terms that are that sound very abstract, but they're also strangely concrete. So he begins to introduce some very odd terms. The first term he introduces, however, is just the German uh, verb to exist, Dasein. Uh, but that's a wonderful term in German because it breaks down into the words da and sein, or being there. Da means there, sein is being. And he says, well, Let's, let's take the human manner of being, which is just to find oneself there, to find oneself somewhere in the world, situated, already going about what, what you have to do. And let's call that human manner of being, being there or Dasein. And now he, now he really starts to pursue his project. He says, well, what's distinctive about the human manner of being? Well, does it have any essential characteristics? Like Descartes would have said it's a thinking substance, the res cogitans. Well, no, that's a metaphysical prejudice. Let's leave that aside. Well, the human manner of being, or Dasein, uh, doesn't have any essence. It looks like if you want to understand what a human being is, just see how it exists. And in fact, he says this. It's, it's, I think, a very illuminating, although rather abstractly stated point. He says, Dasein's quote-unquote essence lies in its existence. In other words, if you try to burrow into the human being and try to find out some pristine or essential feature that it has, you're not going to get anywhere because you're just going to be referred outward to the ongoing process, the ongoing experience of human being. Dasein's essence lies in its existence. You're not going to find any pristine self, anything called uh, the mind or something like that. Let's not try to isolate an essence like that. Let's just look, therefore, at our ongoing manner of being in the world. And so he says, well, that's the best definition we can have. Dasein, human being, just is being in the world. And to drive home that point, he even hyphenates it. Human being or existence just is being in the world. Okay, so that's already terribly abstract, but now he does something very nice. He says, well, what's it like to, being in, to, to be in the world? What are the basic features of this ongoing process of being in the world? What he says is that the human manner of being in the world is to find oneself already caught up with worldly activities and worldly things. And the Cartesian model where the subject is split apart from the object and just stares at it is a terribly artificial one. Philosophy shouldn't begin with that. Philosophy should begin with the everyday experience of being already caught up with things or uh, where we are, you could say, in commerce with the world. And Heidegger says, if we take an experience like hammering, for example, 
we'll figure out more about what the being of the world is than if we step back from the experience of hammering, say, and just look at a hammer. The understanding of the being of the hammer is best construed if we look at the understanding of the hammer that we exemplify when we use it. Put another way, we learn more by doing than by dispassionately observing something. Yeah. You know more about being human by hammering something than by thinking about hammering something. We know something more about being human, and we know more something about what it is to be plunged as a human being into the world, and therefore we also know something more about the world. And Heidegger says that, well, it, it turns out that when we describe the world in the most successful way, we describe it when it is in that flow of use, when the objects of the world don't appear to us as little items for our inspection or for description, but instead when those objects in the world show up to us in our use with them, when we are involved with them. The objects of the world, he says, therefore, are more like pragmata. He uses the Greek term for, for tools. They are objects uh, that we know not as brute objects, but in our involvement with them, in our ongoing flow of concern, our projects, our, our everyday tasks. And he says the world owes its very meaningfulness to that commerce with it, to that involvement with it. Dasein, he says, first discovers what it is and what the world is in its dealings with it. It's just going about its business. And that's really the beginning of Heidegger's uh, 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 project in, in Being in Time, is to pursue a faithful description, a faithful phenomenology of the understanding of the being of the world and of ourselves that we first discover when we are already immersed in our involvements. So there's not just a hammer sitting there and there's not just a mind. There's a human being hammering nails, building a home that is wrapped up and entangled with that process. And that is a better understanding of being than, you know, the encyclopedia with a diagram of the, the head of the hammer and the wooden handle. That's right. If we want to understand what the human being is and we want to understand what our world is, we'd better start with that holistic experience, which is the everyday experience we always have before we got entangled in all kinds of strange philosophical distinctions. Well, if being in time were, were just a description of human activities, you, you could imagine more people might actually read it and finish it. But it, it's probably, <laughs> it gets more complicated than that. Yeah, it definitely gets more complicated than that. And I, I won't go into all of its ideas, but um, one of the other major claims of the book is that the the meaningfulness or average everyday intelligibility of the world uh, is also fixed socially, which is to say by other people. Um, that's true of the hammer, but it's also true more generally of all of the um, all dimensions of our experience. When I'm walking across a field, even if there's nobody else there, the field is a field for me because of a set of inherited meanings that are uh, that are established by means of my culture, by means of a shared language, by means of the community that has given those meanings uh, to me. And that's true whether or not there's someone there. Now, where Heidegger's being in time becomes uh, somewhat more dramatic is that Heidegger 
uh, yokes those insights to ones that have earned him a reputation as one of the founders of existentialism. He yokes those basic insights about the intelligibility of the world to insights that have a somewhat different register that have to do with whether we're living in the proper fashion. Nothing that I've described to you so far really raises the question of whether we're doing things right or wrongly when we go about our business. Uh, but Heidegger introduces this odd idea that we might be lost in our everyday world, that the average and everyday intelligibility of our being in the world is one that has obscured something very deep about us. And the, the way he works out that idea is he says, well, normally Dasein is inauthentic. That is, we owe our manner of being to the world and to those around us. Now, why would it be that you're not yourself when you're just going about your business, immersed in your involvements, and owing the intelligibility of your world to shared understanding? Well, Heidegger says it's because there's something peculiar about the human manner of being that gets obscured when we're doing that. So typically we are inauthentic, but maybe we can recover what's been obscured. Maybe we can glimpse what it is that our inauthenticity is missing. And what he says is very interesting. He says, um, all of these involvements, all of these worldly activities that we share with others are what give the world its sense of thereness, its intelligibility, but there's nothing deeper than them. They just are the intelligibility of things that they are. There's nothing beyond them. There's no essence. There's no platonic form. Uh, there's no uh, kernel of reason. There's just this ongoing flow of involvement and shared social understanding without any necessary ground to it, without anything securing it metaphysically. At least we have no reason to presume that there's anything securing it. We have no reason to presume that there's some kind of certain ground beneath all those involvements. Well, Heidegger says, could we somehow uh, become alive to the fact that there's no deeper ground? And his answer is yes. There's a special kind of anxiety, he says, an anxiety for our very being in the world that reveals to us the fact that we simply are Dasein and nothing more, that we are our being in the world and nothing beyond that. Our anxiety for our very being is something that structures all of our everyday activities because, and we cling to our everyday activities because if we didn't have them, the very intelligibility of the world would fall apart. So anxiety runs through our life, uh, but we typically avoid the lesson it could bring. When we are seized in anxiety for the possibility of our not being at all, we can come to recognize that our very existence has no other ground than our ongoing being in the world. When we are seized with anxiety for our not being at all, that is to say, when we are alive to our being toward death, we have a glimpse of what we truly are, which is to say, uh, 
a nullity, a throne nullity, that we are nothing but our thrownness into time and into the world. Heidegger's idea here seems to be that we can take up that insight into our manner of being. If we come to understand that responsibility for our very selves lies entirely with ourselves, then we can perhaps resolve upon our involvements with a, a deeper awareness, a better understanding of what and how we are. And that would be our authentic manner of being. Where do we see Heidegger's influence today? Why should somebody who's never heard of his name appreciate him for ways of being or seeing in the world? His influence can be detected in almost all spheres of humanistic inquiry and into the social sciences as well, well beyond philosophy. Even people who claim to strongly reject him are, are touched by him in some ways. Um, even someone, you know, the, the philosopher I probably most admire today is Jürgen Habermas. And even Habermas, uh, in, his, in his earliest work, before he drew near to the, um, to the school of critical theorists in Frankfurt, uh, was most strongly influenced by Heidegger and never fully abandoned the Heideggerian insights that uh, inspired him. Habermas's work, after all, is motivated by the thought that we are thoroughly historical and social beings, and that if we want to seek out the ground of intelligibility, we had better uh, look at our horizontal connections to other people rather than looking for some kind of metaphysical principle that lies somehow outside our, our own experience. And, and I think Habermas would actually accept that that original insight, that original drive into social inquiry um, was something that he found in, in, in Heidegger. So it's, it's remarkable. Heidegger's influence can be detected everywhere. Another person who was strongly influenced by Heidegger was Michel Foucault. And uh, Foucault's work um, bears the imprint of Heidegger and Nietzsche in ways that are just um, uh, too deep to, uh, to summarize. With that kind of manifold, rich influence, I think it's impossible to simply excise Heidegger from the philosophical canon because of his politics. I have to say, I, I fully sympathize with the desire that some people have to do that. Um, there are certain kinds of, of, of political commitments that do place an individual um, really on the side of the inhuman. Uh, and I think Heidegger did that. He did that to himself, and he left, he tainted his philosophical legacy uh, with his own political choices. More deeply, however, he, he did a grave injustice to his deeper insights because he, he interwove his philosophical insights with some truly horrible uh, uh, political claims. And we've come to know more and more about that uh, as the years have gone by, the publication of these previously unpublished and unedited black notebooks made this abundantly clear. For me, the ultimate difficulty with Heidegger is that despite all of his talk about our embeddedness in a shared world, and all of his talk about our embeddedness in history, his great preoccupation with the question of the meaning of being ended up turning him away from the concerns of everyday human beings in their suffering. Despite all of Heidegger's talk about being toward death, there's very little awareness of human suffering. 
And I don't think that our mortality is necessarily the most instructive fact about being human. His own student, Hannah Arendt, took a different approach and thought that our capacity to create something anew, our capacity for what she called natality, is somehow a better guide to what makes us fully human. And I would say our capacity to be responsive to the suffering of others and to try to rectify that suffering is perhaps the feature of human being that we should most cherish and that is perhaps most philosophically instructive. And on those themes, I don't think Heidegger offers much guidance. Nonetheless, I don't think he can be set aside. And I strongly reject the attitude of some critics that the scandal of Heidegger's Nazism means that he can be fully expelled from the philosophical tradition. That's replacing one kind of thoughtlessness with another. Heidegger's legacy is too rich and also too complex for, for those kinds of purifying, anathematizing gestures. And so he's, you know, for, for good and for ill, he's with us, and we continue to uh, draw instruction for him, from him even while we wrestle with him. Writ Large is produced by Jack Pombriant and me, Zachary Davis. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. You can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening to Writ Large. If you're looking for another great show about history, culture, and philosophy, you might enjoy my other podcast, Ministry of Ideas, as well as all the podcasts in the Hub & Spoke Collective. If you want to learn more about great books, Doug Metzger's Literature and History is an amazing series of brilliant and delightful lectures on the greatest literary works in history. And if you enjoy words, Ray Belli's linguistic podcast, Words for Granted, is fantastic, fun, and extremely informative. Thank you again for joining us, and may we meet again on another RSS feed in the future. <laughs>